On September 4, we will be having the Soundbite City exhibition at RMIT Gallery. I'm here with the curator, Lawrence Harvey, to talk about exactly what is sound art. Hello, Lawrence. Hi, Emma. How are you? Good, thank you. Yes, the um, Soundbite City exhibition is the inaugural exhibition of RMIT's new collection dedicated to sound art. How is sound art different than visual art? And hang on a minute, we can't see it either. No, that's right. For this particular exhibition, um, it's um, though there is a strong visual component in a in a purpose-built um, structure that we'll I'm sure we'll get onto later on. But um, initially, these are uh, works all created for the ear, not the eye. Um, although we usually find with um, audiences in concert or exhibitions coming along to to this that they often have a very strong um, visual reaction. So just purely through sound people will be reminded of um, a place, an experience, um, it will trigger something in memory, um, they'll form some kind of association to a film, a play, something. So it's um, um, by no means meaningless <laughs> and um, often engenders meaning in ways that we didn't expect. Now it's interesting, um, sound art has become um, very popular around um, museums and galleries around the world. You were saying to me earlier that in fact with 3D films, sound has in fact broken its boundaries in a sense. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I just uh, I, I noticed in the last couple of years, taking my own children to um, 3D films, that um, sound, although there's, the technology has been there and certainly the, um, the technique and the imagination of the people creating the sound design um, has always been in a situation where they could create um, extraordinary three-dimensional sonic worlds for, for cinema. Um, the way that cinema has traditionally worked is you um, have what's called story space and that's all about the screen and you want to keep the audience's attention on the screen and that's where everything happens. It doesn't come into the space um, other than through the screen. Now of course with 3D images you have the illusion of objects um, being in the room just in front of you or swirling around you. This of course um, and, um, um, it's a theory, I don't actually read anything about it, but it seems to me that there's probably been some very interesting conversations go on uh, between directors and sound designers, which is, well, in the same way you now have the, the space occupying the room, the film space occupying the room, we can also put the sound space much more into the room, so the objects and environmental sounds um, at different times are very much present in the room. Mm. Now, this is um, an exciting exhibition because I believe it is, you know, one of the first major collections of sound art in a, in a university in Australia, is that correct? Um, yeah, it is. We've, um, we've been looking into this at the moment, uh, just about what's, what's being held in other collections, and certainly uh, in terms of the scale and the number of works, yeah, this is a significant addition um, to, to sound art in, uh, in any university um, collection at this time. Um, there's been some major exhibitions recently in places like Museum of Modern Art in New York and there's a long history of certainly in um, artist-run spaces um, and the uh, state-funded galleries in Australia um, a long tradition of, of incorporating sound into their general programs. Um, a little in the, ma in the major institutions but yeah, there certainly seems to be on the rise at the moment. RMIT is ideally placed to actually have a collection like this. Can you talk a little bit about um, how sound has permeated many different areas of um, the courses that we teach? Yes, um, at RMIT we actually um, teach and research across um, 
a lot of disciplines and a lot of schools in sound, music and acoustics. So that's three terms that we use when we're talking about the oral world, if you like. Uh, and these range from, um, from sound in fine art through to music industry, spatial sound in architecture, architectural acoustics, um, sound of motor vehicles, very important these days. People spend a lot of time in cars, so it's not just the sound that the car makes that permeates back out into the world, but what's the um, acoustic bubble um, that people are going to occupy while they're in there? Because again, you've got very loud engines and we're thinking about comfort and things like that. So sound in motor vehicles, again, is, a, is another area that we um, uh, research at the university. Even through to things like uh, within the business school, you know, a couple of years ago there was a, um, we had a PhD candidate, trained opera singer, who was looking at the role of the voice in corporate culture. If you're a CEO and wish to not only uh, say things that are informative and assertive, you want it to sound that way as well, you can, of course, train the voice. Uh, in that way. Now, you may be lucky that you have a voice that is um, authoritative and assertive. If you don't, you'll need to do some work on it. And um, it can mean a big difference on how people perceive you uh, in a leadership role, depending on how your voice projects. I, I certainly wonder whether some of the politicians have been getting any training in the lead up to the election. Well, they, they have. Um, well, I suspect they have. I certainly noticed in, um, during Ju Julie Gillard's time that her voice uh, the quality of her voice did shift, um, but I thought um, that it shifted in a very interesting way because they kept the intrinsic quality of it. If you had shifted it too far, then, of course, people would be aware that, oh, what's this? You've, you've, your accent's changed or the way you mm. speak has changed, and, and that would draw our attention to there being um, uh, some kind of... Um, work done. Work done, <laughs> let's call it that. Yeah, the, the, the equivalent, the sonic facelift, if you like. The sonic, I like that, the sonic the facelift. Face, yeah, <laughs> the, um, so... It was certainly not that, but but I but I did notice a different shift in her voice. And um, I was saying earlier, I know um, other uh, recent Victorian premiers who, when um, being presented with something uncomfortable, the or having to say something uncomfortable, uh, not necessarily wrong or untruthful, but certainly they didn't they weren't as at ease speaking uh, as they normally are. And you'd often hear a tightening of tightening of the the, the voice quality in that, uh, and a change in the way that they they sentences would cadence and stop and pause and things like that. Mm, it's interesting all the ways we can give ourselves away, mm. you know, how we present ourselves. Um, going along that, um, can we sort of talk about how sound art can expand the vocabulary of songwriting? And, um, and, and can you sort of talk about what that really means? Mm. Um, look, th these days, again, I think another influence of technology is that we can not only capture sound uh, and use it with other, um, if you like, musical types of sound, um, but it also broadens the palette um, that our ear can experience um, in culture. So music or theatre or dance, but uh, also how it might experience sound just in the everyday world or even with our own um, media devices or the way that we might use, say, when we're putting together a DVD at home or something like that. And um, I know that when you, when you certainly have uh, musicians um, like Goyt who have been heavily influenced by experimental music um, and a a long, uh, lots of different types of music, when he comes to work with someone like Frank Titas, who also has a background in... Um, experimental electroacoustic music. Um, you you have a meeting of minds where uh, somebody with a particular musical imagination meets someone with a particular broad take on sound and its creative use, and there's a fit. Now, I think if you are from a more traditional um, sound engineering background, you wouldn't have necessarily got what he wanted to bring into the studio. And uh, that's for me. I haven't. Well, I've, 
um, spoken to Frank over the years and uh, know where he's coming from. But, um, yeah, I think that was a, an interesting case where somebody with a uh, very broad notion of what constitutes sound could meet up with someone who really wanted to push musical boundaries. Mm. That is really interesting and leads me to ask, how is our sound art aligned with um, either experimental music or, or visual art? I mean, which where, where, do, where does it lie? Mm. Mm. Um, we always still and still continue to have um, a particular type of listening experience, say the concert, very formal, uh, it starts at a particular time, you sit down, you face the front, there's musicians or there might be lots of loudspeakers, has a particular duration, there's an interval, you applaud at the right time, etc, etc. Um, certainly when you come to the context of a gallery, a lot more free-flowing, you can drop in, stay for as long as you want, duration works differently to what it does in a concert. Um, there are particular types of sound works where that is a much more interesting concept um, to, to, to be working in than a, than a concert. Um, scenario. A lot of the artists in the collect in the um, exhibition and the collection um, have practices in both. Mm. They create works that you can just come upon, listen to for some unspecified time, and then move away again. Although the works themselves in this collection all have a have a f most of them have a finite duration. Uh, some are open ended. They they could continue for for hours and hours, um, varying through different ways. But um, in in the same way that um, visual art plays on our imagination in shape, form, colour and structure, um, these works are doing a similar thing in sound. So they're not necessarily limiting themselves to um, what we get from musical instruments, which are objects that make sound, um, highly refined, highly developed, uh, but very particular uh, qualities that they have in terms of the pitches they play, um, the rhythmic structures that they are best suited to, um, or the ways that they can be played, either stroked, strummed, blown... Um, what you find with people working in cross and say electroacoustic musical sound art again is that palette is much much broader in uh, what constitutes material what do you actually work with what do you record how do you use it musically and so through this reframing we might listen to a thunderstorm, a thunderstorm not as um, something that we need to react to to go inside or grab an umbrella but something has a kind of musical symphonic quality to it Mm. So we sort of um, can turn to nature as well for the orchestra somehow. Mm. And in fact, mm. a lot of these works um, are based on sounds in nature. They've, um, particularly people like um, Doug Quinn uh, spent a lot of time recording natural soundscapes, uh, along with urban ones as well. Mm. So do these um, sound artists have a background in um, in music? Is that is that where they come from, some, performance? Some do, yeah. Some do. Some come out of fine art, media art, mm. um, theatre studies, um, yeah, experimental music, composition, uh, anywhere where, where people have been working with, I would say, expanded notions of, um, of, of sound and how it can be used artistically. Okay, that brings us, I guess, to um, how we're going to experience this at Soundbite City at RMIT Gallery. And you were talking about a unique listening space or experience. Now, I know it's called the Taurus, but can you describe that for us? Yeah, well, um, where, where it originally started was that the, one of the ideas for the collection uh, in the future is that it will exist in a uh, more permanent or temporary location on campus uh, in some kind of multi-channel, uh, multi-loudspeaker installation. That's where we'd like to get to. So uh, one aspect of this particular exhibition is that we want to, we want to road test that idea. It's a speculation about um, how would local audiences in the university community uh, respond to um, the collection being available um, 
all the time or at particular times on campus. So in working um, with the architect Nick Williams, who's a, a PhD candidate and researcher here at, um, in SILE at RMIT, um, I put the brief to him uh, along the following lines, that we wanted a space that would invite a promenade for people to walk around, but also uh, offer them somewhere to sit. If they wanted to stay for, for a particular amount of time, they could actually sit and listen. Uh, we also wanted the sound system to be on three levels around the audience, so above, at ear level, and below. Mm. Um, and I didn't give him much more than that. Ah. I left it at that. And so um, he then came back and working um, with colleagues, uh, Jane Burry, uh, and some other architects over in Sile as well, uh, came back with the idea of the torus. So we have a, a donut shape, but an interesting structure in that you can be inside of it, you can be in the interior of it as well, and you can also walk around it. Um, it's constructed on the lines of a grid shell, so it's kind of like a if you if you imagine a lattice that you might grow something up um, uh, in in your garden, so crossed crossed long crossed beams, um, arching up over a, a walking space, and then that frames up a, a what we call a landscape. Um, I still believe it'll have astroturf on it, so somewhere comfortable a to sit. A garden, a garden, if yes. you like, yeah, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere to lounge, sort of like a sort of lawn in the middle of the city, right. um, with a sound system around it. So mm. we wanted to create something which you walked in and went, "What is that?" You know, mm. and you're immediately drawn to it. Okay, and that I believe will fill the entire main gallery, so it'll be it, very. It big. does. Um, yes, we maximise the available space. <laughs> it goes. It, it'll take up the whole of the the large main gallery at uh, at um, the RMIT gallery. Mm. So there'll be. Um, an experience, a visual experience, to go along with the oral experience. Then there, there, there is. I don't. I don't believe um, that uh, a dark room is the best place to um, present sonic work. I think it, that that triggers a whole lot of other pr primal fears in us about the dark, mm -hmm. and um, as we know, our, our ability to to listen and to to process auditory information, to process sounds, is very influenced by by our psychology and. Are we comfortable? Are we fearful? Are we anxious? Are we relaxed? How much coffee have I had today? Mm. Um, so yeah, we didn't, and, and I don't certainly do concerts or anything else in fully dark. But we do, we do um, dim the space. So you can still see quite easily, obviously. Um, but the emphasis is is on the sonic qualities of the space. So we've even done things like we've um, got the air conditioning looked at, trying to get that a little quieter and things. So these there, are all things you need to consider when you're doing a sound exhibition. Mm. Now, I understand you have a mixture of local and international artists. Yep. Is that right? <clears throat> that's right. So in um, in uh, advising the RMIT committee, that's, that's also the, in addition to curating this exhibition, along with John Buckingham and Suzanne Davies from the gallery, uh, my initial role was artistic advisor to the creation of the collection. Um, I have, have a co-artistic advisor in Philip Samartsis, who um, also offered up uh, artists. And what we looked to do that was um, suggest um, a mix um, of um, genres or, or artists working in particular ways, uh, but also with an emphasis on both local, national and international artists as well. So um, we're very fortunate to have a work by Suzanne Phillips, who won the Turner Art Prize a couple of years ago with, with a sound work, uh, and also other international artists, um, as well as them being able to commission local artists as well, as well as acquire uh, works from those artists. So it's a mix of acquisitions and new compositions. Mm. And being a university, there's a research component too, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still um, still a, a, a lot of things to learn about creating multi-channel sound works and then creating the sound environments for those. So um, 
uh, no, some of the artists are involved in um, arts-based research as well. And we're, we're really interested in this going um, into the future on um, how, we, how we might begin to um, uh, look at other ways of presenting and what problems we need to solve in doing that. So some of them are spatial, some of them are technological, um, some of them are aesthetic, artistic. There's a, there's a broad range of work that we're looking into. Mm-hmm. And just to, to finish off, um, I guess... Um if we can talk about the act of listening, is there something you want the audience to go away or to come away from having expanded somehow their, their idea of listening? Um, look, it's always, yeah, it's always an interesting question, that one, because when you're putting together an, an exhibition or event, you do put yourself in the shoes of the audience to say, well, if I came into this room, um, what do I leave with? You know, do I leave with just a big frown or a, a big mm. sort of, well, what was that? Um, or does something change? in the way that I go out and listen to the world. And I think that's really what I'd be interested in. Um, what happens as a result of you walking off Swanson Street, up the stairs through the Suzanne Phillips work, uh, into the 16-channel system in there, and suddenly presented with a transformed sonic environment? And you've, you've moved, what, 15, 20 metres away from a dense urban environment into something quite different, and then back out again, and what happens in that transformation. So there's always that aspect at, at one level when we talk about the artistic experience. People say, well, what does it do? It doesn't do anything. It's always about the relationship. It just pangs on walls. It just gets put through loudspeakers. It's very much about what you're bringing to the work as well and that relationship that you build up through your own um, sonic imagination. And we do all have them. Some I certainly find when I'm teaching students, one of the first things we do is to get them to understand that, in fact, they do have sonic ideas, they do have sonic memories, um, and they probably have sonic dreams as well within all of that. So hopefully the exhibition... Fantastic, fascinating idea. Mm. So, yeah, well, yeah, hopefully mm. the exhibition goes um, some some way to providing a... Um, somewhere to come and play with all of those uh, aspects of our oral imaginations. Now, the works are quite different. You're talking about Susan Phillips' work, and I'm thinking of, say, let's um, look at a, a local artist, uh, mm. um, uh, Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth. Can you describe the difference in the two works there? Yeah, well, um, uh, the Suzanne, Su Su Suzanne Phillips' work is, uh, uh, many of her sound works are all based around um, her singing traditional songs very engaging, evocative work, um, quite a, almost a moment of stillness that you just have this, this um, almost sounds like a cliche to talk about the purity of the solo voice, but it's certainly what's, what's there. Then you get to um, the piece by um, Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth, this expansive, extraordinary work, 5,000 Calls, um, drawing on the sounds of human effort, everything from childbirth through to international tennis to um, calling out on football fields just to anything you can imagine that there, there are the sounds of human human effort um, drawn into a single artwork mm. and um, I know when I've been listening to it in the studio it's quite exhausting <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've actually gone through labour yourself or yeah something. <laughs> well yeah you do you, you really one Wibbleton <laughs> that's right yeah. <laughs> not sure it should be harder I don't know it should be harder Okay. 
Think about what it means to be to be human and to be in the world in quite a different way when you're just presented with these these sounds of running, of jumping, of calling, of breathing, of shouting, of crying, of um, laughing, of, of gasping, of, and all of this just again and again and again in this other context. It's quite extraordinary. It's interesting when you say um, you know the sounds we make as as humans because from the, from the moment we're born, we you know people um, you know everyone's waiting for that first cry mm. you know to actually you know there you are engaged with the world you know mm. you're alive. Mm. So it is about life in a sense, isn't it? The sounds we make. Yeah, and it, and it is. Um, and again, I, I find not. Um, having the opportunity to con- con- continually work with um, sounds recorded in the environment that you are presented with um, just how dynamic the world is when you really do listen to it how we are um, you know, it's not all noise if you listen <laughs> to it in a particular way it is um, it is it is a, a, a cornucopia of sound out there I'm just to, to finally uh, one last question I'm thinking about other cultures, um, you know, if we talk about, say, ethnic music, if we talk about Indigenous music, other ways of using sounds. Um, are those things sort of more explored deeply? I mean, is it a Western sort of idea of music that, that it has to be notated and made out of an instrument mm. rather than No, no, things? nearly all um, cultures have some form of, um, of if you like, and uh, objects embodied with musical okay. qualities and things like that. Um but certainly the relationship of the soundscape to to culture, um, although um, really came to the fore in Western thinking um, through the 50s and 60s, particularly through the work of people like Murray Schaefer and the group at the World Soundscape Project in Vancouver. Um, but the idea that sound is critical to our being in the world um, cuts right across many cultures. And in my um, teaching, particularly in, in the Soundscape Studies course, I do a lecture on on um, Stephen Feld's work with the Kaluli people in um, uh, Papua New Guinea, where the, they live in a visually dense environment. And so sound is really important because they're also always, again, being um, a very wet environment, they're always surrounded by the sounds of water above them. Mm. To the, uh, they're crossing rivers all the time. And so um, the sounds of the voice um, mixing with the sounds of the dense forest then coming through to the sounds of the music and then back into the sounds of the everyday again. There's this constant flow backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards that you get from... Um, uh, except to remember, although it's outside, there's reverberation. Mm. So, And we experience reverberation when in, in an interior, going to a cathedral or a concert hall and you have that beautiful decay in the sound. Mm. Um, but when you're in a forest, you can also get that sense of enclosure as well. So um, your voice comes back to you in that way. Hmm. How fascinating. Thank you, Lawrence, and I can't wait to hear Soundbite City. Thanks, Evelyn.